grading challah, and I'm going to continue that. But uh, first, I want to uh, digress a little bit and uh, talk about uh, some of the halacha support. Again, you probably covered this, but just in case. Uh, this is the very unusual, special situation in Yerushalayim that's called Purim Meshulash, the three-day Purim. Amazing, amazing. Uh, and let me go over some of the background. We know that generally, let's take a regular year. Forget about this year. A regular year. Purim is actually observed in two different dates, depending on what city you live in. Uh, in most of the world, Purim is on the 14th of Adar. However, in any city that had a wall from the days of Yehoshua bin Nun, even if it doesn't have a wall today, Purim is observed on the 15th of Adar and not on the 14th of Adar. And that day is called Shushan Purim. Now, the truth of the matter is, if you think about the logic of this, it's very, very hard to understand this. Because let's go back to the Megillah's Esther. Haman's decree to destroy the Jewish people was to be on the 13th of Adar. On the 13th of Adar, uh, the Jews were given, uh, were, were sentenced to death, and anybody can go ahead and kill them. That decree was annulled. Now, the way it was annulled is in Persia, they could not just repeal it. In other words, whatever the king, it's kind of crazy. The king was so infallible that he could not repeal his own law. So instead of saying you can't kill the Jews, he had to say you can still kill the Jews if you want, but the Jews have the right to fight back and use their own weapons. And a miracle happened on the 13th that all the Jewish people were victorious. Now, it's very important to understand, we don't celebrate Purim on the 13th. The 13th was the day of the victory, was the day of the miracle. But Jews do not celebrate the day of a military victory. They celebrate the day after when we can live in peace. That's a very important idea. We don't celebrate the day of the battle. We celebrate the day of the shalom. So therefore, what happened was the day of the battle was on the 13th. The day of shalom was on the 14th. And the 14th becomes the day that the sages enacted should be Purim. That's regular Purim. Now, Esther then requested from the king, she was the queen, so she had the right to request things, that there are so many enemies of Amalek in the, in the capital of Shushan that could you give us an extra day to eradicate the enemies that eventually will try to destroy us. So in the rest of the kingdom, the war was on the 13th and the peace was on the 14th. In Shushan, there was the war both on the 14th, I'm sorry, on the 13th and on the 14th. So they rested on the 15th. So that became a young day. Now, if I just read the Megillah, then logically, Purim ought to be on the 14th everywhere in the world except Shushan. In other words, the concept of why Purim was on the 15th in Shushan has no relevance to Yerushalayim. It has no relevance to any other city. That's why, that's, in fact, that's why it's called Shushan Purim, because it was the special Purim for the city of Shushan. No, Shushan is Persia, the capital of Persia. Yeah, so the question becomes, where do you go from Shushan to this idea of a walled city from the days of Yehoshua bin Nun? That has nothing to do with the historical reason why there's Shushan Purim. So the truth is that the Rishonim, the commentaries quote from the Jerusalem Talmud that says that logically, Shushan Purim should only be for Shushan, you know, in Iraq. Um, I'm sorry, not, not Iraq, Iran. Iran is Persia, Iraq is Babylonia. 
But the Chachamim didn't want the land of Israel to be treated with less respect. In other words, if you were to say, oh, Shushan, this Gaisha city, gets a special prominence of its own forum, then in a sense you would be downgrading the land of Israel. So therefore, when the Chachamim made a special forum for Shushan, they ex- no, Iran, Iran, you pronounce it. Uh, but however you pronounce it, uh, Iraq is Babylonia. Iran is Persia, is Persia. And there is, indeed, in Iran to this very day, there is uh, a city. It's not called Shushan, it's called Susa. So we know where modern day Shushan is? Yeah, 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 we do, know, we do know where it is. And in fact, the Iranian Jews have a tradition, it's not clear that that's a clear, it's an accurate tradition, that they actually have the graves of Mordechai and Esther, not in Israel, but in Shushan itself, there's a shrine. And Jews go to pray for him at the graves of Mordechai and Esther. In fact, uh, they were Ju- vandalized, right? Say again? Yes, yes. Like destroyed? I don't know if it was destroyed. There was vandal- vandalization. I mean, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, obviously, Iran is a very fanatical uh, anti Israel country. Yeah. They would like to blow Israel uh, off the face of the fa- of the face of the earth, but Iran claims that they're not anti-Jewish, and they claim that Jews are permitted to have synagogues and and, and study Torah. And every once in a while, you can see on YouTube, and, I, and I, you're not, it's not clear if it's a propaganda thing or it's real, but they'll show you like a big synagogue, like hundreds of Iranian Jews who are davening and. The men are, during the week are putting on tefillin, and they do mitzvot. I didn't know there were Jews left in There are, there are. There are a few thousand Jews left. Now, well, it's not a few, a few thousand Jews well, left. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not, not huge. Maybe, maybe 3,000 uh, Jews, Jews left. And they claim that they have freedom of religion. Now, you never know. I mean, listen, even Stalin had some pretenses like that sometimes. Uh, so I don't know if it's true or not, well, but the but the videos are very uh, very convincing. Like you know, they have brises and pigeon abends and, and and Pesach seders and Megillah readings and 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 everything else. And then the Jews say, oh, you know, uh, the, the government is not anti-Jewish; uh, they're only anti anti the state of Israel, Zionist imperialism, or whatever it is. Huh? Yeah, but I, again, I have no idea if it's like, true I'm or not. I'm not sure because I. My community is old Persian, and all the older people escaped. Yes, yes. They were really badly no, that, that's very true. Words, if you go back to Ayatollah Khomeini, going back to when the when the Shah was deposed, then they were really anti-Semitic. They fled by third. That's correct. Many of them uh, fled. Many of them, I know, in my my old my old yeshiva in Baltimore, many Iranians went uh, to that yeshiva. Uh, but the claim is that in recent years, it's, uh, who knows, they say that's different. Okay. So, the, so, so you understand what Shushan Purim is, meaning logically only Shushan should have Purim on the 15th, but the sages didn't want to downgrade the land of Israel, so they said any so-called important city in Israel, which is defined as having a wall, but it can't be based on present because in the, in, in the time of the Megillah, most of the cities in Israel were destroyed. So they went back to an artificial date if it had a wall from the days of Yoshua Binman, which means from the very beginning, even if it lost its wall. But today, it's only, what, is Hebronic one of them? Oh, so the question is, what cities meet that definition? So again, let me point out, Yerushalayim is not singled out individually. The rule is any city that had a wall at the time of Yehoshua 
reads Megillah and keeps Purim on the 15th. Now, we do know that Yerushalayim had a wall. Like the old city? Or yeah, but again, 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 be sure, be sure you understand this. The wall of the old city is not the wall of Yoshua bin Nun. The wall of the old city was built by a non-Jew, by Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent in, I think, the 1300s or whatever it is. But the wall of the old city is approximately, approximately the part that had a wall in the days of Yoshua. And then there's another rule in the Gemara that any suburbs that can see the old city, if there wouldn't be buildings, also read on the 15th. And that's why uh, this neighborhood, Nachlaot, uh, you know, you would read on the 15th. Some of the bigger, some of the uh, more remote neighborhoods, like remote, 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 there's actually a shaila in halacha. Uh, are they, uh, do they follow the 15th or the, or the 14th? Now, are there other cities in Israel that uh, had a wall in the days of Yoshua? Well, Hebron had a wall. Uh, Beit Shemesh is a big question. So you'll actually find in some places in Israel, they read Megillah in a normal year, both the 14th and the 15th, because if you're in doubt whether your city qualifies as a walled city or a non-walled city, you have to read Megillah four times. You know, not evening and morning of the 14th, and then evening and morning of the 15th. And generally, if you don't know, you make the bracha on the 14th, because that's the, that's the main day in cases of doubt. But Yerushalayim is so certain that unless it's remote or these questionable neighborhoods, that we only observe it on the 15th. So that creates the circumstance where Purim is observed on two different days. Now, some people take the position that even in Chutzlaris, if you could identify an ancient walled city, you would read on the 15th. Now, in North America, there aren't any, but some have said Prague, Prague, Czechoslovakia. Prague is such an old city. Prague in Czechoslovakia. Or no, well, let's go now the Czech Republic. When I grew up, it was Czechoslovakia. Uh, but Prague, actually, uh, some she just read the Megillah on the 15th because it's considered to be a very, very ancient city. Now, what about China? What about the Great Wall of China? That, that's a good question, but that's not really around the city. That's around the whole country, so what that doesn't count. the Forbidden City? Uh, yeah, yeah, if, 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 uh, there was a Jew there? <laughs> I'm sure if there's any Chabad house there, but you know, it's in the Forbidden, Chabad of Forbidden City, that's a new one, that's a new one. Uh, but uh, theoretically, if the wall is as old as the time of Yehoshua, has to be that old, uh, then they would read Megillah on the 15th, on the 15th. Now, this year, things, say again? Tzvad? Didn't hear you. Tzvad? Oh, Tzvad, so Tzvad so is one of the questionable ones. So they do um, many kilos and Tzvad do it uh, 14 and 15. So Tiveria, same, same in thing. In Israel, the only non-questionable cities are Jerusalem and Hebron? I think that's, the, I believe that's the case. I don't, uh, there may be some others. Um, Beit Shemesh is a question. Beit Shemesh is a question. Beit Shemesh, which includes Ramat Beit Shemesh. You know, Ramat Beit Shemesh is not a separate city. Ramat Beit Shemesh is part of Beit Shemesh, the municipality. And Beit Shemesh is actually a question. Many say you should read Megillah both, uh, both days and the, and the like. Um, Yericho, Jericho, uh, is, of course, uh, we, we know for sure that Jericho was a walled city in the days of Yoshua because Yoshua was the one that caused the wall to fall. But number one, there are no Jews in, in Jericho. But number two, number two, this is probably more important. 
uh, the place where the city of Yericho is is not necessarily the same location as the original city because in the book of Yoshua it is written that you weren't allowed to rebuild the city of Yericho. So just because it has the same name doesn't mean it's the same city that the Tanakh is talking about. That, what, do you, what do you mean by ancient walled city? Like what, huh? is, what time period is ancient? The time of Shushan? No, the time of Yoshua. Yoshua is right after Moshe. Moshe uh, Which is about way before. Yeah, it's way before the story of Esther. It goes back to uh, 40 years. Way, 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 like, like after. We left Mitzrayim, and 40 years later, we came oh, yeah. to Eretz no, Israel. Yeah, it's much earlier. It's much so earlier. It's ancient, you don't mean like, I mean, from the time of the Exodus, you know, for, you know, yeah, uh, like forty years after the Exodus. Wait, so more, China, China, more than three thousand years. I'm saying that China didn't exist, did it? No. Well, well, I don't know how old the Great Wall of China is, but as I say, it, it's not a city wall; it's a country wall, so it yeah. doesn't. Uh, I'm saying, like, like, like that, that. Like, how did you count that? It didn't exist then. Wouldn't. How did you have what? Like, even if it was, if the Great Wall of China was a city wall, it's not that old. Then, then, then you're right. If it's not if it's not that old, then then it wouldn't Prague. be. Prague didn't exist back then. No, some say it, some say it did. That's what I'm saying. Some say that Prague is that old of a city. Svat existed in the time of yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Svat, Tiberia, These are cities that are mentioned in the Book of Yoshua. I mean, these. Why do a lot of people talk? Yeah, these are not new cities. Svat, Tiberia, Hebron are old cities. A lot of people say Svat, like you know, the four holy cities. A lot of people say Svat is like newer. Well, may, maybe it's newer that it became a holy city yeah, because of the Arizal. But, but Svat as a city is mentioned in the book of Yoshua. Yeah. I mean, it became holy maybe because of later later things. But that, that's a separate that's a separate question. Okay. So this year, this year, uh, all of these differences don't exist. Everybody reads Megillah the same day, Thursday night, Friday, which is the fourteenth. So there's Achdus this year. The reason is because you never read Megillah on Shabbos. Technically, the 14th is Thursday night, Friday. Shabbos is the 15th. So in Yerushalayim or another walled city, we ought to read the Megillah on Shabbos, on the 15th. But there's another principle that says you never read Megillah on Shabbos. Why don't you read Megillah on Shabbos? What's wrong with that? There's no forbidden activity you're doing. So really, it's a rabbinic decree that is very similar to why you don't blow the shofar on Shabbos when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, why you don't take a lulav and an esrog when a day of sukkahs falls out on Shabbos. And the reason is the chachamim were afraid that in your anxiety to do the mitzvah properly, you might carry it into a public domain where there's no Erev, and you're not allowed to do that on Shabbos, to ask a rabbi or ask somebody how to do the mitzvah correctly, and therefore, the Chachamim abrogated a mitzvah that you would normally do on Shabbos in order to avoid any minuscule possibility right. of the desecration of Shabbos. Now, in the case of Megillah, that's not so unusual because Megillah is only a rabbinic law, so the rabbis can say, don't do it. But Shofar is quite unusual because there, they're actually taking a Torah commandment, a Torah commandment, and telling you not to do it. And lulav is the same thing. At least the first day of Sukkot is a biblical commandment. The other days uh, might not always be rabbinic. 
And yet, even if the first day of Sukkot falls on a Shabbos, we do not take it. This is actually a talk for another time, but this is the extraordinary power of the Chachamim to safeguard the Torah that they could actually tell you not to do a mitzvah. Don't do this mitzvah because it may come to the desecration of Shabbos. So here's our problem. Let me just finish the sentence. So given the fact that we can't read the Megillah on the 15th, should we make it earlier or should we make it later? Like, what do you do? So we have another principle that says you never push off Megillah. You always either do it on time or do it earlier. So therefore, that means when the 15th of Adar falls out on Shabbos, the reading of the Megillah of even walled cities is pushed back earlier Thursday night and Friday. So therefore, rule number one after all of these principles is Megillah reading for walled cities will be the same this year as Megillah reading for non-walled cities. Non-walled cities are doing it on their regular date, the 14th. And walled cities are doing it on the fifth, on the 14th as well, because they cannot do it on the 15th because it's Shabbos. Now that takes care of Megillah reading, Megillah reading, but Purim has a lot of other mitzvahs too. So let's enumerate the mitzvahs that we have to do on Purim. We have to hear the Megillah twice at night and in the day. Uh, during the day, not at night, we are supposed to give tzedakah. This is called matanais liavyonim. And that means at least two poor people, evyonim is plural, so at least two poor people have to receive something. So if you give it to a stoka, they, they distribute it to more than one person. And then mishloach manos, or in Yiddish we say shalach manos, but mishloach manot is the Hebrew. And that is giving two, ar two articles of food to at least one person. So you I don't? Never thought about that. What? Shalach Manos is Yiddish and Mishalach Manos is Hebrew. Yeah, Mishloach Manot, or Manos, how you pronounce it, is the Hebrew. And in Yiddish, it got contracted to Shalach Manos. I mean, it's just like an abbreviated, like a shortened version of Shalach. It's short. Well, that, that's a lot of Yiddish is that way. I mean, I mean, it's not a pure Yiddish. It's a Hebrew, you know, yeah. Hebrew word. But in Yiddish, it's things get, get shortened. Just like uh, the third meal on Shabbos in Hebrew is Suda Shalishit. In Yiddish, it got Shalash Sudas. You know, it got kind of abbreviated that way. Yashkayach, yeah, right, uh, right. It's Yashar Kolchacha, right. Right, so in Yiddish, it, it often takes Hebrew yeah, and... Yashkayach, uh, Yashkayach, Yashkayach, right, right, right. So, when the, uh, so, so we have what? We have Mishloach uh, Manos, we have Matonus Yonim. We also have an obligation to eat a Seuda, special festive meal, in honor of uh, uh, Purim. Now, if you live in a non-walled city, you do everything. Purim is legamre, Thursday night, Friday. You do everything. Of course, then you have some problems, by the way, because you're not supposed to eat a big meal right before Shabbos. So that's an interesting problem, which is not a Yerushalayim problem, you'll see. But if you're making your meal <coughs> on Friday, uh, many say you're supposed to make your meal early enough in the day, not in the last part of the day, so that you can finish it uh, without... Uh, ruining your appetite for Shabbos. Okay, that's a separate issue. But when do we do it? So, so again, if you're a non-walled city, you do everything. Thursday night, a Friday, and there's no Purim at all, uh, Shabbos or Sunday. But if you're a Yerushalmi or you live in a walled city, 
So then we split up, uh, we split up Purim into three day, three day observances. And here's how it works. Thursday night, Friday, we hear the Megillah with a bracha. We also give charity to the poor on Friday in the daytime. Why do we do it? On, why, why is that? Because there's an, a clown in the Gemara that the charity always is connected to the Megillah reading. Whatever is your time for Megillah is your time for charity. And the reason was because Megillah reading, of course this year Corona's, everything's different, but Megillah reading was a time when you would have hundreds of people coming to Shoal in crowds. So the poor people would expect that they would get their money there. They would come to Shoal and be able to collect from the big, big crowds. Therefore, uh, the Chachamim enacted, whatever day is your Megillah reading is your day of charity. Therefore, even for the wall cities, Matanos Liev Yonim, we give on Friday. You give it in the, in the morning. Okay, now, what about Al-Hanisim? Al-Hanisim is the special prayer for Purim that you recite in both Shemona Esrei and in Benchi. So interestingly enough, Al-Hanisim is only said Friday night on Shabbos, which is the real Purim day for walled cities. So Thursday night, Friday, you read Megillah and you give your gifts to the poor, but the Al-Hanisim is not recited until Friday night Shabbos. Unlike the non-walled cities, who will of course say Al-Hanisim Thursday night and Friday. So, in addition, there's a special Torah reading on Purim, which talks about Amalek, on Purim itself. This is the Maftir. In a non-walled city, they're going to read it Friday morning. In a walled city, we're going to read it as the Maftir, the, 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 the supplementary Torah reading on Shabbos. So, once again... Wait, sorry, when is it read for the walled cities? Say again? Yeah, the Maf. In other words, Purim. Purim has a Torah reading about Amalek. Purim, not 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 what we read yesterday. It's a different one. So that's read on Purim. Yeah. So in a non-walled city, that'll be read Friday morning. In a walled city, like Yerushalayim, that had a wall, we're going to read it Shabbos as the Mafter. We're going to read the Parsha of the week, and the Mafter is going to be the Purim Torah reading. So, Shabbos has two things connected to it that are Purim-like. It's read, so it's going to be read after the normal Torah reading. That's correct, that's correct. Okay. See, when Purim is during the week, we just read that. That's yeah. the only thing we read. But when it's uh, on Shabbos, it's going to be read as the Mafter. Yeah. Can you just write Parameshulash on the board? Uh, yeah. Does anyone want to volunteer to, uh, to write? I'll give you this one. Parameshulash? Yeah, I'll, I'll spell it if you have a, a spelling issue. Does Mishulash translate something? Mishulash means threefold, like Shalosh. Purim, Mishulash. Threefold Purim. Uh huh. Gotcha. Excellent. Very good. Okay. It's not so light. Can everyone, everyone see that? Purim, Purim, yeah. Mishulash. Three-fold Purim. So again, how does it work? Thursday night, Friday, Megillah, and Matanosli of Yonim on Friday. Shabbos, 
al hanisim in davening and in benching, and the maftir will be the Purim Torah reading of Amalek. And Sunday, which is the 16th, we will so we will have the Seudas Purim, and we will have Mishloach Manos. That's when you give the food. So you're separating out the Matanos of Yonim, which is Friday, and the Sholach Manos, which is Sunday. And therefore, Yushalayim, we have a three-day Purim extravaganza. Again, this year it might be a little more muted, and this is called Purim Mishulash. Uh, if you don't live in a walled city, your whole Purim is only going to be um, Thursday night and Friday. But of so course, a lot of people like to come. You know, a lot of people will be celebrating all three days. They'll come from other cities, and and the like. Now, let me just mention something that you need you need to know. You need to know this because if you're going back and forth between cities, you need to know exactly which halacha is going to apply to you. Let me give you an example. Let's assume that you, you live here, but you're planning to go to Tzfat, well, Tzfat is not, you're planning to go to B'nai Brak for Shabbos. And you're going to spend Shabbos in B'nai Brak. Now, in B'nai Brak, they're, they're going to have their Purim meal Friday. But if you were in Jerusalem the morning of the 14th, meaning uh, the, the, the Friday morning, the beginning of the day, you are obligated in the Purim of Jerusalem. So you will have to be sure to have your meal on Sunday and your Shalach Manas on Sunday. And that's true whether you're going to be in B'nai Brak or back. Even if you're still in B'nai Brak, you have to make a special meal on Sunday because you became bound by Yerushalayim because the morning of Friday you were here. Now, if on the other hand, you left Yerushalayim Thursday night and Friday morning you were in B'nai Brak, then you follow the B'nai Brak Purim, right? So it all depends on where you are the morning Sunday. of the 14th, Friday morning. Friday morning, very important. Okay, so be aware of that. Because I know people like to go away for Shabbos and uh, if you go away for Shabbos in a year like this, you may still be obligated to have your Purim meal on Friday. I'm sorry, on, on Sunday. On Sunday, yeah. So why are Mishloch's mono and the Seuda moved back instead of up? Yeah, no, there's why don't you move everything everything forward? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, a good, it's a good question. In other words, it seems logically that generally speaking, uh, you try not to do a mitzvah early. You want to wait till it becomes an obligation, but we make an exception for Megillah and Stukkah. In other words, those are the exceptions. And Sholach Manos and, Mata and uh, Suda are the norm. And there's no Alanisim. This is very strange. When you make your Purim meal on Sunday, and you're making a Purim meal, and you bench, you'd figure, you know, if I would, make, if I would be making up the rules, it would seem to me, logically, that if you're making a poor meal, the benching should have alhanisim in it. I mean, that is what I would have thought. And yet, that's not true. Alhanisim is linked to the actual date of Purim of the walled city, which is the 15th of Nisan, uh, not Nisan, 15th of Adar, which is uh, Shabbos. The 15th of Adar is Shabbos. Right? So this is called, as I say, Purim Mishulash, and it uh, doesn't happen that often. And in normal years, there are kind of parades uh, 
both on, on uh, Friday and on Sunday. Shabbos, obviously, you can't do all of that stuff. This year, everything is a little, uh, a little muted, a little crazy, but, but hopefully uh, you can still have the simcha of, uh, of, of, of Purim, okay? Okay, so that's kind of uh, what you need to know about Purim Mishalash. And again, as I say, probably the most important thing that could trip you up is if you're going away for Shabbos, still be aware that if you were here Friday morning, you are obligated to follow the Yerushalayim division. If you were there Friday morning, you would actually follow the B'nai Brak uh, division, right? So it all depends on where you are, the crack of dawn, uh, Friday, Friday morning. Uh, since it's not relevant this year, I'm not going to talk about the even more complicated problems when the Megillah is read on different days. How do you determine it? That's actually a more complicated issue. Uh, but since Baruch Hashem this year, that's not a problem because everybody is reading Megillah at uh, the same time, so you don't have that uh, you don't have that problem this year. Uh, other, other, year other years you will have that problem. Like yeah. Next year probably. Like yeah, yeah, next year. Yeah. Oh, so that's interesting. So what if what if uh, Purim, uh, regular Purim, is on Shabbos? So theoretically, you'd follow the same rules in reverse, but but the, the simple answer is the Jewish calendar is configured in such a way that uh, the 14th of Adar can never be on Shabbos. So as a result, it'll never happen. So you'll never have a Purim Mishulash based on the 14th being on Shabbos. You'll only have it based on the 15th being on Shabbos, right? So uh, your question is good, but it's totally theoretical. It's not that it cannot happen. So it's only a Shushan problem? Yeah, that's correct. It's only a problem for you for walled cities and not, uh, not otherwise. Alrighty, right, so that's what I wanted to uh, uh, cover with you. So now we can go back to discuss uh, Chava a little bit. And let me start off with the idea that, um, again, some of this I said last week, but just to reorient, that the Torah says in Parshas Shalach, that's the Parsha of the Spice, that when we make a dough, we are supposed to separate a portion of the dough and give it to a kohen, and the kohen is, uh, is a, can bake that dough and eat that dough. And the portion of dough that you separate is called challah. So again, I, I know I said this, but just to repeat, challah does not refer in the Torah to the way a particular bread is baked or the way a particular bread is, is, looks, like we say, I made challah. That's a, a later use of the word. Challah refers to the portion that is separated and was originally given to a Kohen as part of the Kohen's portion. Remember that Kohanim, did not, Kohanim and Levim did not own land in the land of Israel. And as a result, they were essentially supported by the different gifts that we would give them. And Chala is one of the things that are called Matanais Kohuna, the gifts that are given to a Kohen. How much of your dough do you give to a Kohen? So the halacha is, if you're a private person, you would give 1 24th of your dough, whatever that is. If you were a bakery, if you were a business, so we want to, uh, right, economic stimulus, we don't want to penalize businesses too much, you only had to give 1 48th. You only had to give half as much of your dough. Okay, and that's given to a, to a Kohen. Now, Bismanazah, we no longer give challah to a Kohen. And the reason is 
because today every single person is considered to be Tame because we've come in contact with dead bodies, we've been in cemeteries, and we have no way to purify ourselves today because even going to the mikvah is not going to purify you. It's purified you from nida and other things, but it does not purify you from contact with the dead unless you're sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer. And in the absence of being sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer, we're all tame. All of us are tame. That's really the main reason why we can't go in the Temple Mount today. Because a tame person cannot go in the Temple Mount. Now, by the same token, if a Kohen is tame, he's not allowed to eat the challah. Challah cannot be eaten if a Kohen is tame. And since everybody is tame, we no longer give the challah to the Kohen to eat. And instead of giving the challah to the Kohen to eat, we burn it, we destroy it, because nobody can eat it, and it's holy. So in order that people shouldn't do the sin of eating it, we burn it. Now, that has an interesting repercussion. Since challah today is not eaten, there is no reason to separate a significant amount, like 124th or 148th, because it's going to go to waste. So as a result, you, can, you, you, you only have to separate the smallest little amount. But the Ramah says the minog is the size of an olive. Technically, it doesn't even have to be that, but that's the custom. So you no longer, okay, this is important, you no longer make a cheshbon of 124th or 148th, which in the case of a bakery, that could be a lot. Rather, you separate one little size. Even if you have a dough, you have 100 pounds of dough, you have 1,000 pounds of dough. Right, a bakery could have a huge amount of dough. You only take off a little size of an olive, and that covers your challah for everything, and that you, you burn. Yeah? Um, I have a red question. Yes. Just because I'm really not so familiar with the concept. So back in the day, were there like a lot of them? Or how did they have enough ashes? Yeah, so here, here you have to understand something about this. That's true, there were not a lot. In fact, according to Chazal, there were only 10 of them in the whole history of the Jewish people. Only 10 of them. But the, yes, but the way it works is, you don't have to really use up the ashes, meaning to say, you, you combine the ashes with spring water, and then when you sprinkle someone, all they have to get is the spring water. They don't have to get the ashes. The ashes empowers the water. That's correct. So you can keep on refilling and refilling and refilling and refilling, and, refilling, and uh, you try not to deplete the actual the actual ashes, right? So that, that that's how it works. Okay, like Yeah, it's similar to that, right? So uh, now I imagine in the course of time, some ashes you know got out. So eventually you had to make a new one, but not that many times. It kind of they kind of try to keep it as long as they could. By the way, every few years. Uh, somebody claims to have found a red heifer. Now, for many years, I thought as a kid, I always imagined a red heifer like fire engine red, or like that, uh, like the cover of the Tanya there. Uh, and that's kind of a miracle because that's not the color in which animal. But the truth is, it's not that color. In fact, the color of a red heifer is a common color. It's kind of the orange brown that many cattle have. The uniqueness of the red heifer is not the color, but that, uh, that it has to be 100%, meaning 
if there's even, you can have one black hair. But if there's two black hairs, no good. So you'd have to examine, you know, with really a, a magnifying glass, a microscope, every single, you know, uh, fraction of an inch. That can take a very long time. And that's very rare. It's very rare for there not to be some discoloration. But the color itself is not an uncommon color. And every once in a while, uh, there is someone, something that's claimed to be a red heifer. The problem is, though, there's a catch-22. I'll tell you the catch-22. Okay, I have the red heifer. But in order to prepare the red heifer, you have to be ritually pure. So the way it used to work in the olden days was they would use the last ashes of the old one to purify the people who could then prepare the new one. But now you got a problem. We don't have an old one. If we don't have an old one, there's nobody I could make pure to make a new one. So having the red heifer does not solve anything. What's going to happen eventually is when Mashiach comes, Elio Hanavi will come. He's going to bring back a little bit of the leftovers of the last Paraduma, and then he's going to sanctify a number of Kohanim, and then they'll be able to make the new one. You see, you have to understand this. Having the Paraduma does not in itself solve anything, because you don't have anybody who can do anything with it. On the other hand, some people do say, maybe the fact that Hashem is showing us a Paraduma, maybe that's a bit of a sign that Mashiach is coming, Elio Hanavi. It's coming. But you know, if you have a paradigm, you've got to be very, very careful because it's very easy to disqualify it. If you, if, you had it. if you did any work with it, if you ever plowed with it, it's not kosher anymore. If you even rested on it, if you leaned on it, not kosher. Right? So there's a lot of, a lot of rules not to disqualify the paradigm. It's very, very easy. So if, you, if any of you raise cattle and you have a paradigm, don't even touch it without talking to a rabbi uh, for rabbinical guidance as to how to handle it and, and the like. But the implication of this is that all of us are Tameh, and the relevance to challah is because all of us are Tameh, the challah cannot be eaten. If it cannot be eaten, the only choice is to burn it. And this is the implication when the challah is going to be burnt, you don't have to separate 124th or 148th. You just separate the size of an olive, a kezayis, and that challah is going to be burnt. You make a bracha when you separate, before you separate it, and then it gets burnt. Uh, it is important that you don't burn it with other food. Let me explain why. Because the challah is not allowed to be eaten. So if you cook it with, if you burn it with other food, it may make that other food trace because it's like, it's not, I mean, it's, it's like chazer. I mean, it's not chazer, but it's like chazer in the sense that it's a forbidden food. So if you cook a forbidden food with permissible food, it can make the uh, permissible food forbidden to eat because of the transference of taste. That's why you have to burn it separately in aluminum foil or whatever. Yeah. What if you have your, like, your challah in the oven with that tea? Like, not, like you separated it, but you put it at the bottom of the oven yeah, with yeah, that? Yeah, that's, so after the fact, it, it probably would be okay, but, it, but it's better not to do that. It's better not to, unless it's wrapped up in aluminum foil. If you yes, do yes. No, that's fine. If it's wrapped up, that's fine. But if it's open, 
and it's and if there's open bread and open piece of challah, you have a problem no, of. No, no, well, yeah. no, that's that's right. That, that's correct. That's correct because the the, the, the challah that was separated is like treif. It's forbidden to eat, so it would. So any food, as long as that's correct. Even a, even a piece of uh, pig, right? <laughs> if if somebody is cooking uh, 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 pork in the oven, uh, but it's wrapped up, uh, you know, you're going to be okay. Yeah. If you have like a compost bin, could you put the separated challah into there? If it's like closed, yeah. like yeah. So, so that so that so that's interesting. The question, yes, yeah, it's a good question. The question is, does challah have to be burnt? Or can it just be discarded in a way to guarantee that you're not going to uh, eat it? So uh, it's interesting. Some opinions do say you could do that. Uh, others say that the custom is that we do burn it, just like sacrifices that are disqualified, uh, you burn. So the minag is to burn it. But, but the, in truth, there is halachic ground to permit, uh, to permit that. Now, what type of dough do you separate challah from? It's not every type of dough. So. Number one, it has to be a dough that is made with the five grains for which you make mizonos. What are the five grains? Wheat, barley, rye, spelt, which is really kind of wheat, and oats. Okay? Oats. Oats, yeah. So if you are making oat cookies? Well, I'll get to that. I'll get to cookies. That's in a lot of issues. But let, let's let's it has to be, right? Which means if you're making rice bread, corn bread, there is no challah that you have to take from them because they are not the five species of grains. But now we have a problem. Most times that you make rice, rice bread or corn bread, you usually mix it with wheat flour or, or uh, uh, oat flour, bar, whatever it is, uh, uh, rye. So the question becomes, what do you do when you have mixtures, some of which are the five grains and some of which are not the five grains? Do you have to separate challah from the dough? So this is, this is a little bit tricky. Uh, the simplest rule, but there are going to be a lot of exceptions, so you should, we have to ask for more detail, is that the halacha defines the, the dough by the majority component of the mixture. So if it is 51% rice, it will often be exempt from challah. If it is 51% wheat, it will be obligated in challah. Okay, in other words, you look at the majority component and that will define. But again, make a note that this is not always the case. There are going to be cases where even a minority of the five grains, in some cases, could create a chiv. So you need to ask the, the shayla. So that's rule number one, that there have to be something of the five grains in the challah. Now, rule number two, how large must the dough be? How large, how much flour uh, do you need in order to have to take off challah? So here, the halacha is that the shior, shior is the quantity of challah, is equal to the amount of man that the Jewish people got every day in the desert. And the Gemara proves that that equals a volume 
of 43 and a fifth eggs. That's a volume, not a weight measure. Now, to make it realistic in a, in a way that you could, you could compute it, uh, let's turn it into cups of flour. So, it is between 9 and 18. I'll explain why I'm saying that. Cups of flour. Now, why do I say that? Because there is a whole machlokas, how do you compute eggs? Did the size of eggs change from Talmudic times? So, the way, because it's a compromise, because it's an uncertainty, the way we poskin is the following. Any dough that has nine cups up to and not including 18, you separate challah without a bracha. Once you have 18, you separate challah with a bracha. Yeah, in other words, any dough that has less than nine cups of flour, you don't separate challah at all. If it has between nine and up to and not including 18, you separate challah after you're kneading it. You make a dough without a bracha. If it's 18 or more, you make a bracha. Okay, why, why? You, you, you heard differently or what? What did you hear? I don't know, I'm trying to think in my house if we always do our precious challah and I'm trying to think if we always do more than 18 cups of flour. Well, uh, again, there may be different stuff. Yeah. No, but, but I'll give you, I'll give you some, I'll, I'll give you some other, uh, yeah, but, but again. Two loaves and that takes like seven cups for two loaves. Yeah. So I'm guessing your family probably makes a lot more than that. We make like six, so that it's probably over 18 cups. That's okay. why people do holidays. We have a lot of holidays. Yeah, I'll, I'll get I'll get to the combination later. Okay, so so the general rule is this: if the now again this is a volume measurement. Okay, it's important. This is not based on weight. So for example, whole wheat flour is heavier. A cup of whole wheat flour might be heavier than the white flour. Right. But that makes no difference. Challah does not depend on the weight of your flour. It depends on the volume of your flour. Uh, so whether it's a cup of heavy flour or a cup of non-heavy flour, it's the same volume measurement. So again, if it's less than nine cups, forget about it, no challah obligation. Uh, if it's nine up to 18, not including, it's called the suffolk, it's the doubtful area. Separate without a bracha. If it's 18 or more, you make a bracha when you separate. So it has to be five doughs, five, five uh, kinds of grain, uh, number one. And number two, it has to be a certain quantity. Now, I'm going to get back to combining them later. That's a very, very big question. But number three, let's assume that you have a dough of the five grains and you have the requisite amount. But now we have to differentiate. What are you going to do with the dough? So if you're going to bake it as bread, then of course you take off challah. And even if it's a batter, it's not a, it's not a thick dough. It's a batter, liquidy dough. And you're going to make cookies, oatmeal cookies or whatever. If you have, now often you're not going to have cookies, you often don't have the quantity, but if you have 18 cups of flour or nine cups of flour, you will separate challah from uh, cookie dough. But, but, but again, let me point out, there's a little, there's a little different. Let, let, me, let me point out there's a difference. 
when you're making bread dough, you separate the challah from the dough. When you have a liquidy batter, you don't separate the challah till you've baked it as a cake or cookie. So there is a difference, meaning, uh, now cookie batter is not always liquidy, but, but, but if it's a real liquidy batter like so a cake. It's a thick one? Yes, like thick. Thick cookie dough? That's correct. So thick, thick cookie dough will be like bread dough, okay. separated from dough. If it's like pancake batter, uh, then you separate it from the finished cake. Well, it was but, but either way, you still have to have the volume of flour. Yeah. Since you said pancakes, so yeah. you're making like huge pancakes. No, pancakes are a little different. I'll get to that because that's not <laughs> Okay. In other words, I'm talking about you're baking it, right? You're baking the bread or baking the cake or baking the cookies. Now, yeah. what if you're not baking the dough? What if you're boiling the dough or you're deep frying the dough? An example would be, let's take Israeli sufganiyot or, or donuts generally. Right? You're making a dough and you'll put jelly in it, whatever it is, and then you're going to fry it, deep fry it. Or even a bagel. Bagel's a little complicated because bagel you actually boil the dough, but then you bake it. So, but, so here's the halacha. The halacha is that this is a machlokas haposkim, whether boiled dough, boiled or deep fried doughs, have challah obligations. And because it's a machlokas, so the general rule in this matter is separate the challah, but don't make the bracha. Because remember, that's a general rule in halacha. Whenever we have doubt whether you're supposed to do a mitzvah or not, so our general rule is do the mitzvah, but since if you don't have to do the mitzvah, you're taking God's name in vain, you don't make the blessing. That's always the rule. So boiled dough, which would be, or boiled or deep fried dough, so kreplach is another example. Right? You know kreplach or, uh, you know, uh, like a dumpling that you stuff it with meat or something. So kreplach are boiled, right? They're, they're, they're boiled uh, with the filling. So uh, assuming that you're making so much kreplach that you have uh, 18 cups of flour, if you have that many, that much kreplach, you're really going to town on kreplach, uh, you would not make a bracha on the challah obligation, but you would still take off challah. And the same thing would be true for sufganiyot and the like. Now, there is one case, though, where you don't take off challah at all, and that is where you're making pasta, uh, because that's interesting. Pasta is you're cutting the dough into noodles, and then you're boiling them. So there, since that doesn't have the appearance of bread or cake. Pasta uh, Yeah. Yeah. Flour, flour, flour. Yeah, not yeast, but flour. Yeah. I mean, unless it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, pasta is uh, made. You know, if it's made from wheat, I mean, listen, you can have, you can have other types, but uh, standard pasta is made from wheat dough that was rolled with water, an egg, and then uh, boiled. Uh, so, uh, so a pasta dough uh, would not have would not have uh, challah taken off. Reason because it doesn't have the, the shape, so to speak, of bread or cake, and that's another principle, okay? So we have three things to keep in mind, therefore. Uh, number one, what are the ingredients in your dough? It has to be from the five grains. Number two, what is the volume of flour in your dough? 
number two. And number three, are you baking it or boiling it or frying it? And number four, uh, will it have the shape of a baked bread or cake? That's the noodle thing. And there you don't even take off challah at, at all. Okay, so that's kind of um, the basic rules of challah. And then remember the difference between liquidy batters and hard doughs. Liquidy batters do have challah taken off, but you take off the challah when the product is finished, baked. As opposed to uh, bread dough, you take off the challah before. Now again, if you didn't, let me just make the obvious point, if you didn't take off challah from the dough and you bake the bread, you do have to take it off from the bread, meaning uh, you must take off the challah even after the product was baked, but l'chatchila, it is proper to take the challah from the bread dough while it is still dough and then burn it. Yeah. So say you have to make a batter for onion rings, and for onion rings, you just take a couple of onion rings out. Yes, that, that would be correct. And then would you burn it afterwards? Uh, yeah, you have to burn it. Same as all challah, you have, to, you have to burn it. Now again, though, when you say a couple of onion rings, I mean, keep in mind, you still need, you know, the nine cups of flour. <laughs> so, so if you only made a, f- if you only made a few onion rings, yeah. you wouldn't have to take challah anyway. Yeah. If you are getting something from a bakery that probably didn't do this, do you then have an obligation to take part off of whatever you want? Okay, so this is a little tricky. Uh, technically, uh, if uh, the bakery was obligated to take off challah and they did not. You must take it off. But let me, let me remind you, this is relevant for chutzlaretz. That is, any doughs that were made or owned by a Gentile are permanently exempt from challah. So if, for example, I buy something from a non-Jewish bakery that's under rabbinic supervision, so, so I know it's kosher, uh, technically they did not have to separate challah. And therefore, even when I buy the bread, I do not have to separate challah. Okay, challah is a chiyuv only in a dough that was made by a, a Jew. In fact, even my own dough, if a non-Jew made it, if he was the worker, I would not have to take off challah. Okay, so that's something to be aware of. Now, uh, in a Jewish bakery, if it's under rabbinic supervision, they will take off the challah, meaning to say that's part of the supervision. Part of the job of a mashkiach is to make sure that challah is taken. So if, if, if it's reliable supervision on the ingredients, you can generally assume that challah was taken. You don't have to worry about it. But if you knew that it wasn't, you would have to take it off. Yeah. Let's say you make one, I don't know if you call it a batch, a challah dough, yeah. and you separate it, and then you make the whole broccoli, you do the whole thing, and everyone's breading it, and then they're like, wow, I want to make more challah. And you make more dough, and you kind of move Mix it together with the old dough. Uh, okay, that's a, that's a little bit of a again uh, and then well, that's a little bit of a bad idea. Let me explain why. Uh, if you make a new dough and the new dough has you know 18 cups of flour, even nine cups of flour, you got to take challah again, right? But when you take challah, you can't take it from a dough from which challah has already been taken. So when you mix your old dough and your new dough. Yeah. So when you take the challah, part of what you're taking off is from that old dough that was already exempted. And you can't be yotze challah by taking off something from which challah was already taken, you see? So you have to be 
so uh, very careful so with that. So even if you separate it, yeah. then you can't mix them together after? Oh, no, no. Once, you, no, no. Once you've separated challah from the old and you've separated challah from the new, yeah. you can mix everything together oh. because you've finished your mitzvah. Once you've finished your mitzvah, you can certainly combine everything. Okay. All I'm saying okay. is you should not combine new with old yeah. until you've taken challah for, from the new. Okay. Okay? I, I have a stem question from that. Stem, yeah. question stemming from that. Yeah. The, the challah that you separate, yeah. You said that it's basically like trade. It is trade. So yeah. if you put that in your oven and you, you're not cooking anything, but it's in your oven, does that make? Let's say you turn the oven on for yep. a minute. Does that make your oven? Uh, yes, it, it may make your oven tray, and that's why you have to cut your oven. That's why you wrap it in an aluminum foil. If the challah is wrapped in an aluminum foil, it will not make your oven tray. Like uh, wrap? Huh? It, wrap? It doesn't, have, it doesn't even have to be double wrap. Even a single wrap would be enough. Uh, some people double wrap. Uh, but see, every, every custom has a reason, right? There, like, like you say, there's a reason why the challah is wrapped, because it is treif, and it will make your oven treif. Of course, it's not so hard to kosher an oven, but, but you would have to kosher your oven before you cook other food no in it. Effort. Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, but if it's wrapped up, it's not a problem. Now, let me mention a few more issues. Uh, one actually might be very relevant to many Chabad House uh, projects. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, one of the things that, maybe you've done it yourself, that uh, schools like to do uh, in kindergartens and lower grades is they like to have a challah baking project in which the teacher will make a dough and then uh, separate challah and then give every child a piece of the dough, like the size of a little roll, that they could take home and bake. Did you ever do that or see that, whatever? Yeah, I that. So I want to tell you halakhically, I, 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 I hate to take this little pleasure away from little kids, but halakhically, uh, this is an extremely problematical practice. Why? Because let me explain, there's a following halakha in the Shulchan Aruch, that if I'm making a dough, which is big, big enough for challah. But my intention is to subdivide the dough and give it to different people. And each piece will be less than the amount of challah. I don't separate challah from that dough because since my kavana, my intention is to subdivide it into small groups, so, and each of those pieces is not enough for challah, there's no mitzvah of challah. This is called, in the language of the Shulchan Aruch, Dato lechalek. Dato means my intention, or his intention was lechalek to split the dose. Hmm. Now, so why does it work the other way? Which is the other way? That's correct. That that works that way too. That that works in reverse. I'll get to that. That that is the reverse. Now, let me point out that dato lechalek is only if you're going to be mechalek in dough, not if you're going to be mechalek after the baking. So for example, if I'm baking a lot of challah and I then plan to give away the challahs to separate people, to give away the cookies to different people, there's no problem there because as long as you were keeping the dough and then only giving it away after baking, you separate challah. But if you're going to divide it as dough, then the halacha is challah is not separated. So the practice that you give the kids dough 
to take home and bake, uh, you wouldn't be allowed to separate challah under those circumstances. So what you have to do if you're a mora is you would have to uh, bake it first. Like you have an oven, you know, bake the roll and then then. Uh, and, then give it. and then you can divide it. After baking, you can divide it. So you have to be aware of this. This is a halacha that I think is widely not known or not, not followed. Uh, so be aware of this uh, problem. This is called dato, uh, dato lechalek. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, there's another problem that's a bit esoteric, and it's probably not going to be that relevant, but I'm going to mention it to you because it's very, very fascinating. And that is... The halacha is when you're making a dough that's big enough for challah, from nine cups onwards, even without a bracha, you have to be sure that uh, you do have some water in the dough. Meaning to say, if you're only making the dough with fruit juice or eggs, I don't know if there is such a thing, and you're not adding any water, uh, there is a halachic problem. Now, the halachic problem is a little esoteric but I'll, I'll tell you what the halachic problem is. The problem is this. The problem is that food, apples, wheat, anything it is, can only become tame if it's come in contact with certain liquids, like say water, wine, and the like. Meaning to say, even if a dead body touched uh, some apple that did not come in contact with water from the time it was harvested, it would not become tame. Now, we want the challah to become tame because if the challah didn't become tame, you wouldn't be allowed to burn it. You can't burn challah that's not tame. So when you mix flour with water, the challah becomes tame when I make the dough because I'm tame. But if you only mix the flour with egg yolk or fruit juice, that flour doesn't become tummy, and the challah doesn't become tummy. And then, nobody can eat it because they're tummy, but you wouldn't be allowed to burn the challah because it's not tummy. So you'd be stuck with a piece of challah that you'd have to keep forever and ever because you're not allowed to burn. just wash your hands before you touch No, 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 because, uh, because uh, once again, oh, I'm sorry, could you wash your... Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, 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 yes. No, you're correct, you're correct. Yeah, that would work. That would be equivalent to making the challah wet. Yeah, that's correct. That, that's correct. So, so, so it's, a pro, you know, it's very easy to avoid the problem, but it is a theoretical problem. Okay, uh, the final thing I wanted to mention, I think I mentioned last week, but I'll mention it again. That is, uh, I said before that once you... If, if you didn't separate challah from the dough, you must separate challah from the bread, even from the final product, right? That's important, and that's true whether it's Israel or Chutzlaretz. What, however, there is a halacha that you cannot separate challah on Shabbos. You cannot separate challah on Shabbos. This is a rabbinic law. So what do I do if I baked my bread before Shabbos. I baked my bread before Shabbos, or my cake, or whatever it is. And then I remember, vey, I didn't separate challah, and it's already Shabbos. Eat it. So normally, I wouldn't be allowed to eat it, but there's a chiluk between Chutz Aretz and Eretz Yisrael. In Eretz Yisrael, if challah is not separated, the food cannot be eaten. 
you cannot eat that bread until you separate challah. Wait, in Israel? In Israel, in Israel. Therefore, if you didn't separate challah before Shabbos, and you're not allowed to do it on Shabbos, you cannot eat that bread. After Shabbos, you can separate challah and eat bread, not on Shabbos. So if you have no bread for Shabbos, there's no heter, you have to borrow from somebody, whatever. However, in Chutz La'aretz, we have a certain leniency where if you forgot to separate the challah and you can't separate challah now because it's Shabbos, you are allowed to eat the bread and leave over a little piece. Don't call it challah. Don't say this is challah because you can't do that on Shabbos. And from that little piece, after Shabbos, you say this is challah and you burn it. This is a chiluk between Chutzla Aretz and Eretz Yisrael. And the basis for this chiluk is the following. The mitzvah of the Torah of Chala is only in Eretz Yisrael. The mitzvah outside of Israel is only rabbinic. And one of the leniencies of the Chachamim was to permit you to eat first and separate later. But where the mitzvah is a Torah law, the mitzvah is strict. Now, the truth of the matter is, as, as you pointed out last week, this is a little bit of an oversimplification because the truth of the matter is, Bizman Hazah, even in Israel, Chala is Midrabanan because you need most of the Jews to live in Israel to be Doraisa. But still, since the basic mitzvah of Chala is Doraisa in Israel, so it's stricter than Chala in Chutz Laaretz, which is totally Rabbana. Okay. Oh, yes, I do have one more thing to mention. Okay, uh, one more thing to mention is, is again, what uh, you mentioned uh, uh, 20 minutes ago. That is, you're only chayev in challah if your dough has a certain quantity of flour between 9 and upwards. 9 up to 18 is without a bracha, 18 cups with a bracha. But here is another thing to be aware of. Sometimes it's possible for small quantities of dough, which at the time didn't have a chiyav of challah, they can be later combined, and that may create a chiv, an obligation, that you're not aware of. For example, if they're put in a single vessel, like a basket or a bowl. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine that I'm making rolls. Right? I'm making these rolls. And you know, each roll has, I don't know, a cup of flour. And I make three of them, so I've only used three cups of flour. I don't know if my numbers are right at all. So those three rolls are not chayiv and chala. And then the next day, or every day, I like to make three rolls, and I keep them for, the, for a week ahead of time, whatever it is. And the next day, I make three rolls, another three cups of flour. And I keep on doing it. And I put them all in one bag. Now, at the time I made the dough, everything was less than nine cups. But if I then combine them in a single bag, at that point I now have 18 or 9 cups of flour in that bag. They're combined in a single vessel. I now have to separate challah. And if I have 18 uh, cups of flour, I separate with a bracha. This is called siruf 
kli. Sirif means the combination of, of those because they're in a single vessel. Now, the poskim have said we don't treat a refrigerator or a freezer as a vessel. That's an interesting point. Meaning, if I put bread or rolls, each of which is in a separate bag, but I put them in a single refrigerator or freezer, we don't look at the refrigerator or the freezer as a vessel that obligates me in challah because each one is in its own bag. But if you put them in the single bag, there may be a chiyav of, of challah. Now, this may be relevant on uh, Purim because you're, you're going to get shalach manas from a lot of people. Now, if it was bought in a store, they, they took off challah. You don't have to worry about that. But people maybe bake their own stuff. And even if they're from, they didn't have to take off challah. They, were, they, you know, they didn't have enough flour. But you're going to throw all your shalach manas into a bag Right? There's a hidden challah problem that you might have there. So it's something to, to be aware of. Right? This is called sirif kli, and uh, this is an important uh, risk factor to be aware of. Yeah? So that's a good question. Again, th those are good questions. What if you have uh, things in small bags that are in big bags? Right. So some say, some say, if each one is in an individual small bag, they don't get combined by being in a big bag. Well, because they're still separated. Like because they're still, because they're still separated. That, that's correct. It would only be if you emptied all of them into the knapsack or into the big, the big bag or whatever. So that would be the advice I would give you. I would advise you to keep your shalach in the small bags, even if you put them in a big bag, and don't uh, you know, empty them from their small small bags, okay? So uh, Chala is full of uh, interesting halachos uh, to be aware of. Uh, having said that, it is a very beautiful, beautiful mitzvah. Uh, let me make the obvious point. Uh, in my whole talk today, I did not mention anything special about women, meaning Chala per se is not a mitzvah only for women. If a man makes a dough, a man must separate Chala too. It's not a woman's mitzvah, and yet we do know that it is considered to be a special uh, women's mitzvah. Uh, according to the Medrash, the Medrash says that women generally were the ones who separated challah. And the reason that's given is, Adam HaRishain is called the challah of the world because God took from the dirt a piece of dirt and made the human being that is holy and elevated. So a human being is called the challah of the, of the earth. And Chava brought death into the world, so Chava destroyed the Chala of the world by convincing Adam to eat from the Eitz Adas. So her tikkun is to sanctify and elevate the Chala from the dough. That's a tikkun for the Chala of the world, which was Adam Arishan. Similarly, lighting Shabbos candles. Shabbos candles is not a woman's mitzvah per se. If I'm a single man living in my own apartment, I have to light Shabbos candles, no question about it. And even a married couple, if the wife cannot do it, the husband has to light, right? And yet, we know that this is a special mitzvah given to women, and the same reason, women extinguished the light of the world, which was Adam HaRishain. Her tikkun, her rectification, is bringing the light of holiness into the world. It's a positive uh, message. Uh, in fact, uh, the name Chana, 
Chana was uh, Shmuel's mother, also the Rebbe's mother, uh, and uh, Chana, some say, stands for these three mitzvahs. Chala, Ches is Chala. Nun is Ner, Shabbos. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Nun is Nida, the laws of family purity. And He is Hadlakas Neros, the lighting of candles. So in Chana is a remez to these three mitzvahs uh, that uh, women were given especially. Again, the, the Chala and uh, Hadlaka Sneiros are done by men too, but they are primarily meant to be done by the woman of the house. Yeah? Okay. Related to Chala slash bread, but I'm not sure. Related to what? Say again? It's related to like Chala yeah. slash bread, but I don't know how relevant it is. But yeah. I heard a thing when I was living in spot about double bag, like to throw away the double bag Chala Oh, that's a separate issue. That, that has nothing to do with challah. That's a, that's a law about bread. Uh, there is a rule about bread that because any bread is the main sustainer of life, yeah. you have to treat it with kavod and respect, and you should not throw bread directly into the garbage. Okay. So as a result, you either leave the bread outside where animals can do it. So that's why you often see in Yerushalayim, people are leaving bread uh, out for the cats or whatever. Or you double bag it so that way you're not mixing it with refuse and the like. Now that's not because of challah, that's because of bread. Uh, There's a certain kavot that we have for bread. No, so the same thing would be true for pieces if the pieces are the size of a kezayis. If they're just little pieces. Really? My mom collects all the crumbs. So that's, for not, that's another reason. That's a different reason. That's because it says that uh, crumbs uh, can, ca- can cause uh, poverty, etc. So, so you want to uh, gather them up and not uh, have them in the open. Yeah. But, but the halacha that you're not, uh, that you're not mavaza, you don't treat uh, bread with disrespect. Only applies if it's a kazais. Yeah, yeah, but if you're making sandwiches, yeah. and all of us eat sandwiches on Thursday, that's our yeah. lunch. Yeah. And then there's pickles, there's onions, there's cucumbers, like all over the table with yeah. the crumbs. You can't go and be like. No, well, that well that's, that's what I'm saying. Well, so, well, some some people will be strict, but we we're not we're not. I mean, they say we're we're only machmer if it's a uh, if it's a kazais is a kazais, okay? Yeah. You know, at the end of the meal, we like clear all the yeah, yeah. 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 And by the way, Bechlal, I mean, and of course there's a general rule, which has nothing to do with bread in particular, called baltashchas, of not wasting food. I mean, that's a general rule. And in fact, one of the big, big problems, if, if you look at how much food goes to waste after weddings or bar mitzvahs, it's an awful thing. And uh, the problem is that there are laws that you often cannot give it to a homeless shelter or whatever it is because, you know, it was used, it was open. There are health risks. So there are some organizations that find ways of, of using the food and collecting the food. Um, somehow they know how to get around the, the laws. Why would they be able to No, no, because the reason is because once the food has been uh, served or it's, you know, it might get contaminated or it's not packaged, a lot of homeless shelters will not accept open food. They'll only accept uh, packaged food. Uh, so that's the problem with these, with these affairs you know, and, and, and the like. Okay. Um, I think that's. Uh, I think we covered a lot today. Any uh, any other well, final? I'm sorry. Yeah. Food yeah. Edible, right? I'm sorry. I didn't hear you. Say it. That's correct. That that is correct. So yeah. like raw it or if it's something that's disgusting, uh, then it's al- it's already destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sir. Um, can we do the laws of 
uh, if people want, I don't know if it's uh, if it's so relevant <laughs> to you yet. I know, but it's just interesting. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll go over it at least uh, briefly, okay. so you'll be familiar with it, uh, with you. the laws of Nidar. Alrighty, and again, as I say, as I always say, um, if there's any topic you would like me to talk about, uh, you, you, you mentioned one, but uh, please email me or tell me because I'm happy to uh, talk about what you want to do, what you want me to talk about. Okay. So anyway, have a friendly Purim, a happy Purim. It should be uh, a time of good. Thank you.